Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. It's 3 o'clock p.m. on the East Coast of the United States, two days after the end of voting in the 2020 presidential election. The country is anxiously watching as ballots are counted in Nevada, New Mexico, Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania to see whether Donald Trump is reelected or Joe Biden becomes the president-elect. By the time you hear this episode, the situation may have changed dramatically, but I still wanted to talk to one of our leading experts on politics and campaigns about what happened in the election and what happens next. So joining me in our Zoom studio is Elaine Kmark, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at Brookings and Founding Director of the Center for Effective Public Management. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all our shows, including Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, The Current, and our events podcast. Elaine, thank you so much again for joining me on the podcast. Oh, Fred, happy to do it. All right. Well, as I mentioned, we are all on tenterhooks watching Twitter, watching uh, websites uh, for new ballot counts. But let's start with your thoughts on the election in general, voting into two days ago. What surprised you? What didn't surprise you? Oh, I think I was surprised, as were many people, with the size of the Trump vote. Um, The early polls had led us to believe that um, Biden was substantially ahead in some of the swing states. And while he may win the presidency uh, by the time this airs even or later tonight, um, the fact of the matter is that he did not perform as the polls indicated he would. That being said, this Democratic Senate candidates didn't perform. I mean, we had some surprises. For a long time, everybody thought that Susan Collins in Maine would lose her seat. In in fact, quite the opposite. It looks like she's won it fairly comfortably. So we've we had a lot of surprises. It, it was all in all a good night, probably for the president, uh, for the president-elect Biden, um, if that happens in the next 12 hours. But it was kind of a disappointing night for Democrats on, on the other ballots, on the other uh, races. So uh, as I mentioned, I mean, we're all watching all sources of information. I mean, I think even as we're talking right now, the Georgia Secretary of State is giving an update. Uh, but uh, there's a real process that has to happen. Uh, starting from this moment, starting from when the the polls closed to today to tomorrow in the next week, there's a real process that states have to go through to certify that this many ballots were cast for this candidate, this many ballots were cast for that candidate. Can you kind of walk through what that formal process is? Well, yeah, I mean, we're kind of spoiled because we're used to getting election results on election night. And that can only happen if two things are going on. If, in fact, there's a substantial winner, a clear winner in in a state, and frankly, um, a lot of times there just is. And it's easy for people to predict the win, even without, even with just a small amount of the vote um, cast. When states are very close, um, when a race is very close, It's really hard to predict the vote on election night. And the reason is that people have to count all the ballots. And the ballots vary in from county to county. Um, some counties have more resources than others. I was just seeing on CNN a reporter in Savannah, Georgia, and they've only got two um, scanners scanning the ballots. And then whenever the, the scanner 
spits one out because there's a problem with it, they have to go a quarter of a mile down the road and they have to get a, a special team to look at it and adjudicate that ballot. So, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of stuff going on in counting the ballots. And this year, there's a particular problem. This year, more than 50% of the ballots are being cast, uh, were being cast ahead of time through the mail or through um, through mail drop boxes or something like that. And frankly, that what that did is it completely strained the resources of all the counties in America when it came to counting ballots. I mean, they used to count under 10%. Um, absentee ballots. Now they're counting the majority absentee ballots. And so we knew going into this, this was going to be a big problem, but they do know how to do it. They just have a lot to do. And that's why it's taking so long. And so then uh, I believe there must be some kind of process where the, maybe the secretary of state of each state uh, or the election office has to certify that these are the final counts Yep. So what happens is that that the counties, generally the, the counting is done at the county level. The counties will count ballots. They will put them into um, piles, right? They'll put them, and, and there will be a pile of ballots called provisional ballots. And these are ballots where there's something wrong with it. Like maybe it's a mail-in ballot and the address um, doesn't match the address on the voting rolls. Um, maybe it's a ballot where they the, the, it, there's it's smudged and you can't tell which circle um, the voter intended to, you know, um, fill in. I mean, there's a variety of problems. Now that stack of provisional ballots gets placed aside, at, because obviously it takes a long time to go through those and figure out what the voter was trying to do. Some states actually contact the voter and say, hey, you know, we've got this ballot here. Here's the problem with it. Do you have an explanation? Can you show us, you know, your real address or, or whatever? So that pile of provisional ballots grows as the um, election count goes on. A lot of times we never even hear about it because the um, the, the vote is so clear and the margins are so big that the provisional ballots wouldn't make any difference anyway. And in a lot of elections we've had in the past, the absentee ballots wouldn't make any difference anyway. Right now in 2020, we've got a perfect storm, right? We have a very close election. We have incredibly high turnout and we have a huge number of vote by mail ballots. And those three things coming together um, are turning election night into election week. Right. And so assuming at some point there is a I don't know, definitive determination that this many votes for Donald Trump, this many votes for Joe Biden happens on the next day of the next week. Um, what, what's the next process? I've heard about a December 8th, I think it's December 8th, fail safe date. What is that all about? Well, that's the date by which the um, the Secretary of State has to say, this person won, and I'm sending these electors to the state capitol to sign the Certificate of Ascertainment, which is a, um, a quaint 19th century, 18th century, frankly, term. And that's what actually elects the president. It's the elector, each elector for a state signing the certificate and sending it to the president of the United States Senate who opens the ballots and declares the presidential election finished. Um, you, people 
people don't realize that electors, the electoral college is actually composed of real people. Um, and they are selected by their political party in the state. So they're very loyal Democrats, very loyal Republicans, and they actually literally meet and they meet and they sign this certificate and the certificate gets sent to Washington. And that's how we elect a president. But of course, we see electors as we just see electoral colleges votes for the states on television. And it doesn't occur to us that there's this whole process that goes on afterwards. All right. And I assume that the, the meeting of the electors uh, will have to be virtual, like by Zoom or something. And that happens in mid-December, December 14th or so? Yeah, it happens December 14th. Um, I don't know how they'll do it. My guess is that in certainly in some states where the virus is raging, they will do it by Zoom. But, you know, they might do it in their, usually it's in the state legislative chamber. So they might have people come in masked and stay far apart, sort of the way they've done some of the votes in the House of Representatives, you know, with, um, remember, there's not very many electors. I mean, the biggest one is California. It's 55 people. I suspect you can spread out 55 people in the legislature with and keeping them more than six feet apart. Some states, they've got three electors. So um, I'm not sure how they'll do it, but um, obviously they'll have to be COVID safe. Right. Now, as I recall in 2016, um, there were a few what they call faithless electors who, uh, and I can't remember on which side or who they voted yeah. for, but they didn't vote for the candidate they were elected to vote for. Now, I can, it didn't make any difference uh, in 2016, but I can imagine there is a scenario where Joe Biden has 270 electoral votes, Donald Trump has 268. All it would take is one Joe Biden elector to be faithless, <laughs> and then we'd have a tie. And then there's a whole other thing that happens that we whole don't have to talk thing. about. But can you address this? Uh, question, do we have to worry about the faithless elector? Um, probably not. And the reason is that the parties are very, very, very careful vetting to, to vet the people they make electors, right? So, um, so it, it, you know, we probably don't have to worry about it, but, you know, it, it could always happen. And then, of course, there'd probably be a court case it would probably go to the Supreme Court, get to, get there rather quickly. And I have no idea what would happen there. I mean, the Constitution is pretty clear that the electors were supposed to elect the president. So uh, who knows what the court might do about that one faithless elector. But if that happened and you had a 269-269 tie, um, then it goes to the House of Representatives, which is a whole other thing. It'll be the new House of Representatives, the one that will become yes, seated at the beginning of January, not the current one. Right. All right. Well, it's 2020, so uh, strange things are <laughs> happening. But uh, to be honest, I hope not that one. Well, let, let's uh, switch gears here a little bit and, and um, look ahead. Um, as all this is going on, and assuming Joe Biden um, gets to 270 more electoral votes, then he and his team have to begin a presidential transition. Can you explain to listeners uh, what exactly a transition means and how it unfolds? Well, the transition is technically the period of time between election day right now and um, up through the up until the inauguration. During this time, um, the president elect does a few things. First of all, um, he starts to put together his team, his cabinet, etc. And there's lots of 
lots of um, discussion about that. Secondly, they are authorized to go into the government agencies and get briefings, both from the current occupants of the office, but also from the career civil servants who are there. Uh, that's why, by the way, all these stories you're going to hear about how Trump's team isn't going to cooperate with the Biden transition team it doesn't really matter. I mean, the people that they need to hear from are the senior career uh, civil servants who are, you know, who know what's going on in the agency, what the problems are, what's going to blow up, what's what's not going to blow up. I mean, those those kinds of things. So that that process starts taking place. Um, as soon as there is a president-elect. Um, it used to be that this was a process that they raised independent money for, and then Congress decided that wasn't such a great idea. So now when there's a president-elect, the GSA, the Government Services Administration, actually provides a couple million dollars for, tr for the transition team, gives them some office space, gives them phones and computers, and pays some salaries. Um, so that you're not raising money from special interests during your transition. As you can see, that was that people figured out that, that was kind of a bad idea. Um, and so now the federal government pays for the transition. Now, it's reassuring to hear you uh, say that the uh, the senior executives in government um, you know will cooperate with if it's Biden, a Biden transition team because uh, yes, there is a lot of uh, theorizing that, uh, an embittered President Trump, outgoing President Trump, could cause trouble, but um, oh, or refuse to cooperate. But and I just say that that the way President Trump has treated the career government, right, and the insults he has he has hurled at them, his inability to staff the government with competent people throughout his administration. Uh, believe me, I think most of the career bureaucracy will be very happy to sit down and have a serious discussion about government with a Biden transition. And it doesn't matter what Trump says, and it doesn't matter what the people in his agency do, in his appointees do. Uh, there are other kinds of things so that uh, an outgoing president could do that um, that worry you? Um, no, uh, frankly, no. And the, and the reason is that, uh, I mean, let's, let's go through the big things he could do, right? Um, other than probably passing a stimulus bill and signing a stimulus bill, um, the, there's no chance that this outgoing president is going to pass legislation, right? Unless the legislation is a great big bipartisan deal worked out by the Democrats and Republicans. I mean, there's no way that an outgoing president passes any major piece of legislation. No, nobody could do that. Um, so if, if there, you know, I, I think there will be a stimulus bill. And my guess is it'll be bipartisan enough that even if Trump for some reason decides not to sign it, it could be even veto proof. So he can't do anything legislatively. Um, he has made a big deal, as have presidents before him, including Democrats, including Barack Obama. He's made a big deal about rolling back regulations and all the things he's done through executive order. Well, guess what? An executive order by one president can be simply remanded by an, by an executive order by the next president. So my guess is that um, Joe, the Biden team is already putting together a list of, of executive orders that they'll issue on January 22nd, and those executive orders will be um, 
you know, undoing that one, undoing that one, undoing that one. So, um, and even if he does try to sign some new executive orders, um, usually those executive orders only have teeth if they direct the government to either do create or undo a regulation. And the regulatory process itself um, is defined in law and it takes a long time. There has to be a public review period, et cetera. So there's not very much that Donald Trump can do in this, in domestically in this period. Um, the one thing he can do, which I suspect he will do, is he can pardon people. So I wouldn't be surprised if my, if uh, Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort and some of the other people who were convicted as part of the Russia probe, I wouldn't be surprised if they were pardoned. That's sort of an outgoing president's biggest opportunity. And then finally, there, there people are worried about what he might do in foreign policy. But I think that there there's a sort of delicate dance. I mean, the president might say, you know, just even before the election, the president said he was going to bring all the troops home from Afghanistan by Christmas. And guess what? That's not happening. The Pentagon said, no, we can't do that. And his own national security um, advisor said, oh, that was wishful thinking. That wasn't that wasn't really in order. So there are limits on president's powers all the time. Um, even popular, just elected presidents, there's limit on their powers. Those limits get to be pretty severe when a president has just been defeated for re-election. Well, Elaine, let's uh, let's just come back to the present uh, as we wrap up here. Again, it's it's Thursday afternoon, November fifth. Right. Um, what are you going to be looking for in the next hours and, and days to tell you how this will all turn out? Um, I think there's three states I'm going to be looking for: Pennsylvania. Arizona and Nevada. Um, Arizona and Nevada alone can put Joe Biden over the top, even if he loses Pennsylvania. Obviously, if he wins Pennsylvania, he's got it. And I think those are the likeliest scenarios. Um, there's also this little business of the second congressional district in Maine, which is yet to be called, where there's one electoral college vote. But mostly, frankly, it's going to be those three states, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Nevada. Um, the other two that are still on the board, if you look at the television, are Georgia and um, North Carolina. I just don't see North Carolina happening. Georgia might happen, but it'll be a big surprise um, if it does. It'll be it'll be razor, razor thin. And my guess is that everybody's going to look at Pennsylvania in the next 24 hours for one simple reason. That state, if, if Biden wins it, it's the race is over. He's got it. And one of the only ways that Trump at this point can win is by winning um, Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, I think that it's come back to Pennsylvania. It started out Pennsylvania and it's coming back to Pennsylvania. Well, uh, Elaine, I want to thank you as always for uh, sharing your insights and expertise with us. It's a, it's a fast moving story and we're all on pins and needles. And uh, I know that uh, we'll be talking to you and, and plenty of other colleagues in governance studies in the coming weeks and months about these issues. So thank you. Thank you, Fred.
Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is possible only with the help of a team of amazing colleagues. My thanks go out to audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and our intern Ryan Jacobs, to Bill Feynman, director of the Brookings Institution Press, who does the book interviews, to Marie Wilkin, Adriana Pita, and Chris McKenna for their collaboration, and finally to Camilo Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the current and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.